welcome you again if you're visiting with us. We are going to be uh, more brief this morning than usual with with the sermon. So just in case you're visiting, you think, I like that guy. He's short. Well, I'm not trying to deceive. If you return, it might not be this way. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I want to ask you the question, what is God like? What is God like? This is a question that the world asks, right? Who is God? What, what is he like? We often use the phrase that, in speaking of Jesus, that Jesus is God, right? But as a professor said, couldn't one of my professors, couldn't we equally say that God is Jesus? Now the Trinity, of course, is a mystery that we will delve into just a bit this morning, but when we think of Jesus and we're trying to understand who God is, could we not say that Jesus is the full expression of God? So that when we ask what is God like, all we have to do is look at Jesus. When we want to know what God would say, all we have to do is listen to Jesus. You see, this morning as we look at verses 5-11, through 11, Paul is going to delve into jump into a short biography of the life of Jesus. The passage is very simple as we break it down. We see three aspects of the life of Jesus. He came, the $3 word for that is incarnation. He died, the fancy word for that is atonement. And that he rose and will come again. This is the story of Jesus. He came, he died, he rose, and he will come again. And this story in itself teaches us how we are to live. How we are to live. And so, will you stand with me and we will read together Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I'll be reading from the ESV. It's on page... 980 and 981, if you're using the Bible in the chair back in front of you. We'll begin in verse 5. Paul tells the believers in Philippi and to us through the Holy Spirit, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. I'd like you to bow your heads and I want to pray a little bit differently this morning. I want to ask you as you bow your heads, will you pray that Jesus would speak to you this morning? Please pray this as I'm asking you. Please bow your heads and pray that Jesus would speak to you this morning. Pray that he would soften your heart. And that by the whole power of the Holy Spirit, you might be transformed into the likeness of Christ. 
children, will you pray that Jesus will speak to you this morning? Children, God speaks to us through his word that he's given to us in the Bible. So will you pray that Jesus will speak to you this morning? Father, thank you for giving us your word so that we may know who you are. Thank you for giving us Jesus so that we might not only know who you are, but we might have relationship with you. God, you are good. You are goodness and perfection. Lord, may we behold you this morning and may our lives be transformed. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Amen. We're going to begin in this passage by looking at the story of Jesus that he came. Now, this is going to be in verses 6 through 11. So that we don't bypass verse 5, let me tell you that this verse, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, is basically a bridge between verses 1 through 4 and verses 6 through 11. You see, in verses 1 through 4, Paul has challenged the believers in Philippi to be of one mind. To have one mind among yourselves so that there would not be division among the body so that this group of people might love each other, be kind toward one another, and when they have disagreements, consider one another more significant than yourself. This is not human nature in sin, is it? It's to consider ourselves more significant than others. So Paul has commanded them, do this, and then he said as a building to what he's doing in verses 6 through 11, have this mind, the way you do this is by looking to Christ. The only example for this is Christ. And so he's built a bridge to verses 6 through 11. And we begin in verse 6 with Jesus came. Again, this is the incarnation. Incarnation simply means that he put on flesh. Jesus put on flesh. But in saying this, in saying that Jesus came, he also says that he was in the form of God, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Within the text, Paul is saying that Jesus was pre-existent. In other words, unlike, unlike us, we are simply born, and it's the first time we have existed. Jesus has existed forever, being equal with God. So when Jesus came, he was coming only in the flesh. He had existed for all eternity. And so we need to just consider this for a moment, that Jesus is eternally equal with God. There are a couple verses for this here. John 8.58, this is in your notes. If you have taken out the notes, if you have not, those should be helpful to you. John 8.58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I am is a phrase that comes from Exodus. It's where God revealed his name to Moses. And so Jesus, in saying I am, is saying I am co-equal with God. John 17, 5. And now, Father, Jesus prays, glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. Jesus points to his pre-existence with, with God from the beginning. And so, Jesus is eternally equal with God. This is what Paul is telling us about who Jesus was. But though he was equal with God, he did not consider that something to be grasped. But what, is, what does that mean? So Jesus would get rid of his divinity? No. This grasp means that he wouldn't hold on to it in the sense of take advantage of it or, and exploit that identity. There's a good illustration for this in our day. 
uh, dictators, modern day dictators and even dictators from all of history. Dictators see their power as something not to be used for the good of others, but to be exploited for themselves. Let me give you a couple of specific examples. Emperor Caligula, one of the first emperors, he ordered boats to be rounded up and put in a line across the Bay of Naples so he could walk across them from one town to the other. So this emperor, simply because he has the power to do so, orders all of his people to get boats and line them up across a bay simply so that he can get the pleasure of walking across them from one town to the other. Kim Jong-il, a more modern-day example, he used state-controlled media, he controlled it, to control his worshipful image. So the media said that a double rainbow and a bright star appeared in the sky on the day he was born. The first time he bowled, the media says that he scored a perfect 300. And in his first round of golf, he had five holes in one, scoring a 38 under par. Do you see what's happening here? These dictators who have power and the ability are using that power and ability, exploiting it for their own advantage, using it for themselves, right? Now, these are absurd examples, but aren't there ways in which we take advantage of what we have? We see what we have as a right, and so we might exploit that. Now, we're a consumerist culture, so I think this is the easiest way to identify with this and illustrate it. But we might say, for instance, just because we have a certain amount of money means we have the right to build a certain size house. Just because we have the money, we have the right to be able to go and enjoy a very expensive dinner. Or we have the right to be able to enjoy a particular style of car. Now, I'm not saying all of these things are wrong at all. These are things that the Holy Spirit must speak to you in, in these ways. But Jesus, being equal with God, did not consider his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather his identity meant as God that he would pour himself out for others. And so, friends, what that means is that to be in the image of God as we are, means to pour yourself out on behalf of others. What Jesus does in becoming incarnate, putting on flesh, is he teaches us how to be human, how to exist in God's image, what God has designed us for, right? And Jesus teaches us, as he pours himself out on behalf of others, that to be in God's image means to pour yourself out. It means not to take advantage of what you have for your own good and your own sake, but to use it for others. This is the character of God. This is who God is. God pours himself out for our good. And this is what it means to be in God's image as his image bearers, that we would pour ourselves out for the good of others. So Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, to be grasped for his own benefit, to be exploited, but he poured himself out. It says in verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. 
What we want to look at is that Jesus, he was God. He's been God forever, but he also, he became man. This is the incarnation. So to the same extent that he's God, he's also man. I think the recent fetish with superheroes might be helpful or it could be hurtful in helping us understand the incarnation a little bit better. None of the superheroes can perfectly fit, but we do have our favorites, right? But Jesus, he certainly isn't like Iron Man, let me tell you. He, he doesn't just take off his suit, his divinity, and all of a sudden becomes this vulnerable, helpless, but still arrogant human, right? There's more to him than that, because he is man, but he's more than man. I've heard some suggest that he might be closer to Superman, Clark Kent walks into the telephone booth and comes out Superman. Superman walks into the telephone booth, comes out Clark Kent. Now, none of these illustrations are perfect, but I do think they're helpful imagery for us understanding that Jesus was God, but he put on flesh. He was equally God and he was man. The incarnation is a mystery that we'll never completely understand, but know this, that Jesus became a man. And was still God. The great contrast is this. Low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Listen to that again. Low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Jesus became a man. The scriptures testify to this over and over again. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Likeness means equal with sinful flesh. John 1.14, now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. Jesus became one of us. Paul says he took on the form of a servant. You saw that there. That word really means slave. And we don't know everything that Paul had in mind here with Jesus taking on the form of a slave. But we can make some safe assumptions. So just quickly, first, Jesus became like one of us and faces the challenges that all of us face. Temptations, we see Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Weeping, he weeped at the death, death of Lazarus. He faced hurt. But then also, it might have been the circumstances Jesus was born into. Isn't it quite amazing that the one who designed your times and seasons, like where you would live, when you would live, and in the family that you would be born into, he himself chose to be born to a virgin of 13 or 14 who was not yet married. And he chose to be born into a family that had no wealth. You see, Jesus was born into a world and he did not have any rights because of the family he was born into. Some of you can identify with that. He did not have wealth. He didn't have a wealthy father or a rich uncle who could get him in places. But Jesus came in the form of a man and just a man, not even a very significant man. He took the form of a servant in every way. But then also, he humbled himself even beyond that. This is what Paul wants to get to. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And Paul doesn't end at death. He says, death on a cross. And this is significant. He took the lowest experience of all humanity for his own experience. The cross was one of the basest forms of torture in all of human history. Up to this day, it still exists as one of the basest forms of torture. The mere mention of it was considered like a curse word. A Roman 
would not be crucified because they were a citizen. So in Philippi, what's quite amazing is that Paul is saying to the people in Philippi, Jesus died a death on a cross. Philippians are Romans. They would not have had gold crosses around their neck. It was an object of pure shame, yet the believers in Philippi are saying, our Lord died upon a cross. You see, Jesus humbled himself in every way possible. Every way possible. And here's the emphasis for Paul. Jesus came from the highest glory and humbled himself through obedience to the lowest depths. So the death of Christ is one of the most revealing aspects of God's character. That he is abundantly loving and that he is to the extent of sacrificing himself. Himself on a cross. And Paul, he's pointing to the practical here. What does this mean for us? If you're to conform yourself to the mind of Christ, to be like Christ, you must be willing to humble yourself with no limits in every form of obedience, friend. The cross erases your every excuse for obedience. I heard someone say recently that following Jesus is like signing a blank check. You really don't know what you're getting into, but you've signed it and you said you're going to do it. Jesus went to the cross, friends, so that you would have no excuse. You must be obedient if you're to follow Jesus. And you don't know where that obedience might lead. It might lead to very difficult places. But you can trust that your Lord has gone there and he will go there with you. He won't abandon you. Your pride must be humbled. Multiple times, mine's been humbled by the Holy Spirit telling me that I need to go confess something to someone in the body or that I need to confess my struggle with that person, that I need to make right a relationship. You see, when Jesus humbled himself, Paul is using this as an example for the body so that when you have difficulty here, you look to Christ and you say, He did that, I must go make things right here. This is what the obedience and the humility of Christ means for us. It is exemplary so that we would be obedient, that we would be humbled in every way. So, Jesus, preexistent with the Father, became incarnate as a man, humbled himself to the point of death, even upon a cross. So, it is exemplary in this sense, but it's more than that. It is also atonement. You see, the death of Christ has multiple meanings. There are multiple levels of it for Christians. And so, like when I use the word that something's bad, some of us get confused with that. It's easy to get confused because somehow in our culture, bad all of a sudden means good. I'm not sure what, have y'all heard that before? Bad all of a sudden means good. And so we have to ask, when you say bad, do you mean like really bad or do you mean good right now? And so the cross like that has multiple layers to it. It has meanings. At first, it's exemplary so that we follow Christ in every way to every extent of obedience. And then also it is atonement for us. What does it mean, friends, that the one who is God who became man died? What's the significance that the God-man would die Listen to the passages. 1 Peter 2, 24-25. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we may cease from sinning and live 
for righteousness. You see, the God-man dies so that he can bear your sin, my sin. And so that you might stop sinning and live for his glory. By his wounds, you were healed. You were going astray like sheep, but now you have turned back to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. When the God-man dies, it means your sins can be forgiven. It means that God's punishment for your sins has been taken. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prays and he says, Lord, will you let this cup pass if it's possible? Do you remember that? That passage where Jesus asked that God, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Well, the closest reference we have for that is the Old Testament when the cup is spoken of as God's wrath being poured out on the people for their sins. The significance of that is that when Jesus died upon a cross, we've spoken of the brutality of it. It is very brutal. It's very shameful. But Jesus didn't only die. He wasn't only beaten. But in dying, the God-man drank the wrath of God that was to be poured out on you. Your sins create a separation between you and God. There's no way for you to get to God. In fact, all that you deserve is the wrath, the punishment of God. But Jesus in His grace and His mercy and humbling Himself to the point of obedience becomes exemplary, but He also becomes our atonement. He takes our sin. He drinks the wrath of God that we deserve so that you might have joy and peace with God. This is the atonement. Lastly, He died but he also rose and will return. He also rose and will return. Verses 9 through 11. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a perfect parallel with this in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. This is in your notes. It says this, surely every knee will bow to me. Remember, this is the Old Testament. We don't know of Jesus yet. And so it's Yahweh, God, speaking. And he says, surely every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will solemnly affirm. They will say about me, yes, the Lord is a powerful deliverer. What does this mean? The revelation of Jesus and Jesus' obedience and then His resurrection to glory says that people will not, no longer just affirm Yahweh as Lord, but Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. He is Lord. And there's something very significant about this. It says that every knee should bow and every tongue will confess. There are a couple of uh, pictures that give us a, a, a glimpse of what this is like. It says every knee, right? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, pointing to a future day in which God will bring all things together, Christ will return, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to Christ that He is Lord. Whether you've believed on earth or whether you haven't and you've completely denied Him, on that day, everyone will confess that He is Lord. You see, there are a couple of pictures in the Old Testament of being in the presence of God. I've put these scriptures on the notes there. One is in Isaiah 6, another is in the first chapter of Ezekiel. These men encounter the presence of God in the temple. 
And when they, it says that when they see the glory of God, they bow down. They bow down. Here, here's the picture. Friends, when you enter the presence of God, whether you've denied Him on earth or not, when you enter His presence and behold His glory, you no longer have an option to bow down or not. Because of His glory, you will bow down and you will willingly confess that He is Lord. So, either you will respond that He is Lord here in repentance of your sin and in faith in Christ, or you will bow down and confess He is Lord when it's too late. When it's too late and you have denied Him. I find it similar. I don't know, men, if you when those doors opened on your wedding day and you were able to see your bride and there was a certain feeling that you couldn't control seeing her and all her beauty. It was just the feeling. You didn't even have to conjure it up. It was just there. That's what happens when we behold God in all His glory. There's no feeling that has to be conjured up. His glory just demands it. You will bow down. So, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will return in all glory and everyone will bow down. And it will all be to the glory of God the Father. But remember that Paul is using this passage as an example for us, right? Here's what he's pointing us towards. That Jesus, what happened to Jesus, he humbled himself to the, and he obeyed, and then he died, and then he was resurrected to glory, will return in glory. This is a pattern for us. You see, the Philippians are suffering, and what Paul wants to teach them is that Jesus was resurrected to glory, he will dwell in glory, and friends, likewise, all of us, as we struggle, toil through this, uh, everything in this earth, we might suffer at the name of Christ, but there's a pattern. We also will be in glory. We also will be transformed. Philippians 3.21 He will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of His glorious body by means of that power which he, by which He is able to subject all things to Himself. There's a wonderful promise to us in Christ that we will become like Him, that we will be transformed and we will receive the glory. This glorious body. And so, as Christ was obedient, we are to be obedient. We are to be humbly obedient. And our bodies will be transformed. We will be with Him forever in glory. So Christ, in conclusion, He's not only our Savior, but He's also our supreme example We look to Him when we struggle with obedience because He was obedient to the furthest extent. He's our Savior and our example. And let me read this quote to you as we conclude. This passage reinforces a significant aspect of Paul's Gospel, namely that there is no genuine life in Christ that is not at the same time by the power of the Holy Spirit being regularly transformed into the likeness of Christ. Please see how Paul has used these verses. It's in the middle of commanding the church to be of one mind. And then in verse 12, look at verse 12. 
Look at what Paul says in verse 12 after this wonderful exaltation of Jesus. He says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now. And what he's going to say is obey. (laughs) Do you see it? That the glorious obedience of Christ means you be obedient. That the gospel of Christ, that he would save you from your sins, means live a transformed life. Continue to be transformed by the Holy Spirit daily. The gospel of Christ is not just a prayer to be prayed. It's a life to be lived. It's to experience now and then it's to be experienced forever more. See, friends... He came, that means that you are to find all your significance in Him, the one who is God yet came in the flesh. He came and He died so that you might be saved from your sins and that you might be obedient. And then He rose, promising us everlasting life with Him, that this body that we have now will be transformed and we will experience glory with Him. So Christian... For you, this is a motivation to obedience. He was obedient, you be obedient. To those who have not believed, please don't miss those final verses. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Will you bow now? Will you confess now that He's Lord? All this is to the glory of God the Father, of the very purpose of all our lives, that we exist and that we were created. Let's pray. God, thank you for your greatness and goodness that you would send your Son to be our the atonement for our sins, forgiveness, but then also a supreme example that we would follow in obedience. Thank you for your great goodness that you display your character as a God who gives. As a God who sacrifices himself and pours himself out so that we might live. This is who you are. This is why you are so good and why we declare you. Lord, convict our hearts so that we might be changed. God, that we may reflect your likeness and truly live in your image the way that you created us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand and sing.